Welcome to Faith Community. <laughs> we are glad you're here today. In today's scripture, if you're interested in getting a little bit of a heads up here, uh, we'll first off start in Jeremiah chapter 2. going to look at the words of, of the Lord that came through the prophet, and then we're going to move further on in scripture, but uh, we'll announce that as we go. If you're visiting with us today, we're glad you're here, and we hope you'll stay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy of fellowship. Thank you that we can come together around the word and know that we're dealing with truth. We thank you, Father, for all blessings that come from you. We know that every good and perfect gift has come from your hand. And the greatest gift of all is salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. May every word that's said here today and every thought that's thought and Every deed that's done, may it all redound to your glory. And we just ask that the name of our Savior be lifted high and exalted. And we praise you for it. In his name we pray. Amen. I'm presently in a series of messages, so if you've missed any, you can go online and pick up where you, 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 I may have left off last time or one you may have missed. Uh, also, uh, we have the uh, CDs available. It's a series entitled, The Truth Is, and I, I introduced this a few weeks ago as a series on Christian apologetics. Not that we're apologizing for being Christians, that's not at all what apologetics is, but it's a systematic defense of the basic beliefs of Christianity. In other words, what do I believe and why do I believe it? It is the foundation of our faith. And I thought it was high time that we circled back. It's been a long time since uh, either of us have done anything in, in that kind of foundational teaching. And um, we, would, we would bring it in under the, under the title of Apologetics and the Truth Is. Now here's what I want to do as a review of the first message in this series. Take a couple of minutes and have Dr. Kent Hovind just recap what I was saying in message number one. So let's watch this. All right, your question, where did God come from, assumes that you're thinking of the wrong, uh, obviously it displays that you're thinking of the wrong God, <laughs> because the God of the Bible is not affected by time, space, or matter. If he's, if he's affected by time, space, or matter, he's not God. Time, space, and matter is what we call a continuum. All of them have to come into existence at the same instant, because if there were matter but no space, where would you put it? If there were matter and space but no time, when would you put it? You cannot have time, space, or matter independently. They have to come into existence simultaneously. The Bible answers that in ten words. In the beginning, there's time. God created the heaven, there's space, and the earth. There's matter. So you have time, space, matter created, a trinity of trinities there. Just, you know, time is past, present, future. Space has length, width, height. Matter has solid, liquid, gas. You have a trinity of trinities created instantaneously. And the God who created them has to be outside of them. If he's limited by time, he's not God. The guy who created this computer is not in the computer. He's not running around in there changing the numbers on the screen, okay? The God who created this universe is outside of the universe. He's above it, beyond it, in it, through it. He's, he's unaffected by it. So for, and the, I, the concept that a, of a spiritual uh, force cannot 
have any effect on a material body, well then I guess you'd have to explain to me things like emotions and love and hatred and envy and jealousy and, and rationality. I mean, if your brain is just a random collection of chemicals that form by chance over billions of years, how on earth can you trust your own reasoning processes and the thoughts that you, you think? Okay? So, um, I, your, your question, where did God come from, is assuming a limited God. And that's your problem. The God that I worship is not limited by time, space, or matter. If I could fit the infinite God in my three-pound brain, he would not be worth worshiping, that's for certain. So that's the God that I worship. Thank you. All right, your question, where did God come from? Uh, I, have, uh, I have changed uh, some of my thinking. If uh, you'll just, uh, I'm going to just admit it. I always said, if you lost your Bible, all you need would be the first four words. So I have amended that now to the first ten words. All right? I love that explanation of time, space, and matter, and of God and who God really is. So that's message one. Message number two, I'm entitling, Does It Matter What I Believe? And I subtitled it, all religions are basically the same, aren't they? I want to go to Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to have this on the screen for all who would like to follow along. And uh, I'm going to begin to read some verses starting at verse 5. So Jeremiah is speaking to the nation, and he's giving the word of the Lord. And so these are God's words. He says, this is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? Can I just stop there for a minute and put in a parenthesis? I listened last night or watched an older version of a Billy Graham crusade from St. Louis, Missouri back in 1973. So that puts it at what? 40-some years ago. You do the math because I'm not that good at math or English, or social studies, or history. But anyway, they followed worthless idols and became worth, worthless themselves. And Billy Graham was saying, in 1973, I think there's still hope for America. What on earth would he say today? He said, we have gone so far away from God and the principles of the Word of God and he said, I believe there's hope for America if we'd get back to God. And my heart just kind of shuddered when, when, I, when I heard him say those words. And I thought, what in the world are we going to preach today? What are we going to say today, 43 years later, or 40 whatever number of years later? I think there's hope if we just get back to God. So, this is kind of what Jeremiah is saying to the nation they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. And uh, let's keep moving. They did not ask, where's the Lord? They didn't ask that. Who brought us up out of Egypt? Oh. And led us through the barren wilderness uh, and through the land of deserts and ravines. A land of drought and utter darkness. A land where no one travels and no one lives. Pretty barren stuff. Pretty hopeless. 
I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. These are some pretty strong words, aren't they? From the Lord himself, through the prophet. The priests even, the religious leaders didn't ask, where's the Lord? Those who deal with the law didn't know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, not by God, but by the false god, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. This is the sad part of what happens when people and nations forget God. The after effects don't just hit that generation but they live on for many generations to come. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. And I put a little subscript in there saying, or if there ever will be anything like this again. Has a nation ever changed his gods? Yeah, they're not gods at all. Notice the small g god. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. And then the 13th verse. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Recently, one of the major mainline Christian denominations in this country met in a convention in a major U.S. city to debate of all things whether or not Jesus Christ is the one true Savior of the world. The question before them was, is he the universal Savior or might there be several? What about the other world religions and their claims? Some people wonder if perhaps there are not many paths to God. If you ask the average American on the street today what the difference was between the major world religions, they'd probably mumble out something about all religions being pretty much the same. People assume that all religions have nearly the same moral teaching and ideals. They might have different names for God, but it really, when it boils down, it's the same God. These religions, many people believe, may travel different roads, but they all lead to God. As long as you believe in something, and as long as you believe in God, whoever that is or however you describe that, it really does not matter what form your belief takes. That's what the majority of people think today. Now, the truth is, the major world religions are all very different and even contradict each other at crucial points. What this means is we're left with only two options. Either none of them... Now, your grammar's going to kick in here, so I'm going to give you an option. Either one of them is true, or if you're writing it down, you probably see that one of them are true. 
And let me just say before you criticize my grammar, either is correct by today's standard. Of course, anything is in grammar anymore. So you have two options. One of them is true, or, one, and, and, or, and, or none of them is true, or one of them is true, and everything else not true. Having said that, I will work hard to be gracious and also very respectful of all the religions I'm going to mention. However, it's important to understand there are substantial differences. I want to lay that groundwork for you. Because this morning, we're going to look at the basic belief systems of the five major world religions. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. All religions are not the same. So if you came in this morning thinking all religions are the same, few differences, but they all lead to the same place, I want you to just set that along the side of the road for now, and let's keep our journey going. Hopefully you're going to see by the teaching this morning and by the Word of God, and by the way, I want you to be a student today. I want you to open up, as my old geometry teacher used to say, I want, to, I want you to turn the switch on your mental you know, on your mental organ here and get, get your brain in gear and give it a real good hearing and then learn and take in like a sponge as much as you can this morning because there is a trend in our culture to just plain be pluralistic and politically correct. I'm so tired of hearing politically correct that I don't want to be politically correct anymore, and I wish we could stop being politically correct so I didn't have to hear politically correct anymore. Now, I know that's not politically correct, but I cannot apologize for not being politically correct, because if I did happen to sound politically correct, that would be the one time in my life that it ever happened. We need to dismiss differences and we need to put all the religions, and some people think, well, we can do this if we just do away with our differences, we act politically correct, and put all the religions in one big melting pot. I don't plan to do that this morning. I want to consider one, two, three, four, and five. Number one, Buddhism. That's where I begin. I read of a conversation uh, of an American visitor. The man actually was a pastor, and he was visiting with a man in England who was a chaplain at a public school. And they were talking about Buddhism and how many Buddhists were in this school. And, and the chaplain said this, and I quote, I teach my students, the students in my classes, that Buddhism is basically an atheistic religion. Now that sounds shocking. That may not sound gracious to you. It might even be contradictory to some people. But that man was essentially correct. Now let me tell you why. Because most Buddhists oppose the concept of an ultimate God. Let me explain. Buddhism is not about finding God. And it's not about finding his will. Buddhism himself, Buddha himself didn't claim to be divine. Nor did he claim that his teachings were derived from some divine source. At last count, there were probably between 350 and 400 million Buddhists worldwide, and one of them is a college professor of Eastern religions at Northwestern University, and this lady said in an interview not so long ago, she said, God is not the focus or the ultimate concern of the Buddhist tradition. Instead, the Buddhist tradition focuses on the teaching of the historic Buddha. 
And Buddha simply and singly means enlightened one. His original name was Siddhartha Gautama, and he lived about 480, 470 B.C., and he was born on the border between now what we call Nepal and India. He was born as a prince. He had a lavish palace, everything he could want in life, but he was a young man troubled about the meaning of life. He said, if I have it all, why am I not happy? And so as a young man, he left his family and he went seeking the truth. He tried everything from indulgence and strict asceticism, but as he sat under a bow tree one day, he discovered that the problem of life, as he defined it, was craving. Craving, he said, leads to dissatisfaction. You want something, and even when you want it, and then when you get it, you're dissatisfied with it, so you want more. It sounds like us today in the modern Western world. I used to say this sounds like young people that I work with, but it doesn't apply to young people any more than it applies to anybody. Maybe they, of the newest millennial generation, even less. But he used to say, well, we want what we want till we get what we want, and then we don't want what we wanted anymore. So Buddhism's central teaching is how to arrive at what they call the ideal state. There's no longer any craving. In fact, any kind of desire, no kind of feeling. And that state is called, some of you know, nirvana. Some of you are there right now. It is... It is the state of disinterest toward everything that's around you. In short, the way to avoid unhappiness and suffering is not to care or feel anything at all. You never form an earthly attachment. Wow, just think of those things to start with. And then in your mind and in your heart, do a contrast with the words of Jesus where he said he came to give us life and give it to the full. John 10.10. Jesus said he came that his joy might be in us. I hope his joy is in you this morning. And that our joy may be complete. John 15.11. And instead of withdrawing from life and any emotional attachment to it, Jesus taught that we are to enter into life in the fullest sense of the word. We're not to escape from life, but to take it on with enthusiasm. Because difficult though it may be, he is always with us. And he, he, it's he who said in John 16 and uh, verse 33, he said, in this world you will have trouble. I don't, we get so unglued when trouble hits, when reversals happen, when disappointments come, when discouragement sets in. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will experience trouble. But, take heart. Take heart. For I, he said, have overcome the world. John 16, 33. So, if I lose all attachment, I form no attachment of love to others. How can I live that way? Jesus said in Mark 12, 31, that we are to, to love others as we love ourselves. That's a high and holy 
demand of the Christian. Now, there are many people today, they don't even know it, but they're practical Buddhists. They withdraw from life, they shield themselves from emotion, they protect themselves from emotional attachment to others, and I think the biggest reason is so they don't get hurt. Again, contrast that with the teaching of Jesus, where he said these words. Now, listen carefully, because I've said these words hundreds of times, and I wonder if anyone's ever really heard them. He taught us to even love our enemies and to do good to those who despitefully use us. Now, those are the people who would have the power to hurt us and hurt us the most. Buddhism teaches that life and the created world are illusory. It's not real. There's nothing real. It's all an illusion. So to enter nirvana is to escape the illusion. So salvation, let's just kind of end on this note, for the Buddhist is not salvation from sin, as we know it, but salvation from suffering. So I'm going to ask it again. Does it matter what I believe? Secondly, we're going to consider Hinduism. Now, Buddhism, we just talked about, and I'm not getting into great detail on any of these. I'm just trying to whet your appetite so you'll be sure that you know what the truth is. But Buddhism has roots in Hinduism. Certain branches of Hinduism are atheistic. God's not involved. God's not important. And certain other branches of it can have, did you know this, thousands of gods. And in fact, if you follow certain rules and practice meditation, you can become a god. Now, that's the best news you've heard in a while, right? I mean, I know some of you already think you're one, but you, 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 you practice it long enough, and you get meditation going as well. You know, you can become a god. And that's at the very heart and core and center of what we call the New Age religion. It finds such a close tie with Hinduism. They don't want to call it Hinduism. They just call it New Age. Rather than a belief in one transcendent God whose creation is separate from himself, as we heard Dr. Hoven say, everything is a God. So we can all be a God. So New Agers are into meditation, and that's what's driving it. And they get in touch with their own divinity. Hindu gods like Krishna and Shiva or Shiva are depicted as violent and erotic. Shiva usually is represented with several arms and legs. His fierce image wears a necklace of skulls. He displays sexual imagery, and he's surrounded by demons. Hardly the same kind of deity as Jesus Christ, the perfect, pure Son of God. According to Hinduism, the world is all illusory. And history is cyclical. That is, we just keep repeating exactly what's taken place before, and we do it over and over and over and over. You do it in your life, I do it in my life, we all do it in our lives, and the whole world does it. We're caught in this endless, wearisome cycle. History has no point, and it's not headed toward any conclusion. Human lives are part of this cycle, and thus they go through endless, endless 
reincarnations. And I'd really like to believe in reincarnation because I'd like to know what some people were in the last life. <laughs> but that's how we survive. That's how the human survives under this system of Hinduism, is you go through several reincarnations. I don't know if you can choose that at any time or what. Let's talk about salvation for the Hindu. That is delivered from the cycle that we go through. Suffering is seen as necessary, and it's unavoidable, and it's part of the cycle. So a person's karma, how many have ever heard of that word? Greatly overused and misused today. That is the accumulation of deeds done in the past. So all suffering is repayment for the evil that you've done in some former life. So don't complain about it because you brought it on yourself. <laughs> and by the way, anything that happens in a person's life is deserved. So whatever you're going through, whatever troubles you've seen, whatever hardships you've endured, it's all deserved. And humanitarian concern and compassion and love and grace are not part of traditional Hinduism. Hinduism promotes the, and, and did very much for centuries the caste system. How many ever heard of the caste system? And that's not when you break your leg and get some plaster of Paris on it. The caste system. Which said that people, listen to this, are predetermined to live in luxury or poverty according to their karma, and nothing can change it. That's a hopeful situation, isn't it? In fact, it would be detrimental to ease their suffering. And by the way, I might just say, geopolitically, that this belief system has held India and some of the, some of the neighboring countries in that region in abject poverty and total bondage for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So I want to ask you, does it matter what I believe? Well, let's look at Islam, a religion practiced largely in the Arab world, also in large par uh, portions of, uh, of Africa. How many have ever heard of Islam? It has its roots, let me just give you the historical background. It has its roots in Judaism. Since their patriarch is Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews. The Arab world traces its lineage to the firstborn out of wedlock son of Abraham by the name of Ishmael. That's why they're called Ishmaelites. However, the Jews trace their lineage to Isaac, the son of promise. He's the son of Abraham and Sarah, who had been promised by God. Now the wars and the hatred and the tension in the greater Middle East today can be traced back to this biblical story of who really is the rightful son of Abraham. The word Islam simply means submission. 
And that says a lot about the attitude of the followers. They submit, if they're true, dedicated, devoted members of this religion, they submit unquestioningly to the teachings of what we would call their Bible, the Quran. The Quran contains divine messages said to be given by the angel Gabriel to Muhammad. Muhammad is the self-acclaimed prophet who lived in the 7th century. I, th I find that very interesting. There's no room for question or doubt, only submission. There are a couple of interesting things about Muhammad that we... Well, first off, he was completely illiterate. He couldn't read nor write. And so it was said that he dictated what Gabriel told him and his followers wrote it down. He was given special permission by Allah to have 13 wives. And he was considered to be a wise man. <laughs> Something doesn't shake out there. His 13th wife was six years old when she was betrothed to him. And the marriage was consummated when she was nine. So people of this faith generally are among the most serious, devout people on the earth. You ever want to find somebody that believes what they believe, they can't answer the question what or why, but they believe what they believe with no questions asked, you've got to find a follower of Islam. I mean, many of them have, listen, many of them have the Quran completely memorized. Christians. Oh, I can't memorize any scripture. I love it how you just quote verses and you. Hmm. We can do anything we want to do if we're devoted enough to do it. They pray at least five times a day, they fast for one month of the year coming up, Ramadan. But here's the kicker. Salvation is something that must be earned. It's not graciously given by Allah. This religion has a high standard of morality, they say, called the straight path. Must be strictly maintained. The treatment of women is very questionable to those of us who were brought up in a different culture. One sure way of earning salvation for them is to die as a martyr. For the faith, in the name of Allah. The liberal press calls them suicide bombers, but in essence, they're homicide bombers. Now, if you want to blow yourself up, you want to strap a bomb to yourself and go out in the woods somewhere where nobody's within 100 miles of you and let her off, that'd be a suicide bomb. But when you do the very same thing in the middle of a market with hundreds of people around or on a bus with 50 or 60 or 70 people, that's not a suicide bomb. That's a homicide bomb. And the press needs to wake up, smarten up, and speak up. That will never happen. They believe that just as quickly as Muhammad was whisked away immediately into heaven and then given several maidens, so it will be done for those who die for the cause. Those who attacked the World Trade Center back in 01. We're coming up on 15 years. And those who engage in other acts 
of terrorism. They act in full accord with the tenets that they believe are immutable and unchangeable in the teaching of their faith. And the Western world, particularly the United States, is seen as corrupting the entire globe. Therefore, we're worthy of death. Most of it is because of the U.S. policy for many years of befriending Israel. When we do, some of you are old enough to remember when we befriended Israel, and she was our greatest ally. And until we start defending and protecting and standing up for Israel, we're going to suffer just like we're suffering right now in this nation. Mark my words. I said this 25, 30 years ago, and I'm still saying it today. But we stand as something harmful and oppressive, and we're, we're a big object in the way to the cause of that faith. Now, the principle of jihad, or holy war, you've heard those words, is taught, and it's a visible tool for the cause. Evangelism is not so much by the word, it's by the sword. And what I mean by that is, the followers of Muhammad have been the most violent people in the history of the world, and continue to be so to this day, a fact that's well attested to in history. Jesus taught that we're to love the sinner, and Muhammad taught that the infidel must be killed if he refuses to convert. So let me ask you to consider this question. Does it matter what I believe? Now on to Judaism. Judaism, of course, is the mother of Christianity. Our God is the same God. Our history is the same history. The Jewish scriptures are part of our Bible. We have the same moral code and commandments. We see history and the world around us through the same eyes. The only difference really is that the Orthodox Jews anticipate the coming of the Messiah. We believe that he's already come in the person of Jesus Christ. Our New Testament is added to the scriptures of the Jews and contains the story of Jesus and the significance of his presence in the world 2,000 years ago, yea, even today, right? The Jews read the prophets and we see Jesus as the fulfillment of all those prophecies in the Old Testament. Interesting, interesting. We see the teachings of Jesus as fleshing out the spirit of the Old Testament law. Some of those in the Jewish faith see Jesus as a legitimate prophet and as a teacher and as a good man and as one who can be trusted and whose writings, uh, the, the, the stories of him can probably historically be deemed accurate. Many Jewish people give it that much legitimacy. A Christian pastor said he remembered one time taking a membership class to a Jewish synagogue. And any Christian that really wants to know the background of 
his religion and where some of our thinking started and what it's all centered around. You, you should visit a, a Jewish synagogue. I highly recommend it. If you've never been in a synagogue, it, it would be a great education for you. But anyway, he was taking this class so they could learn more about the Jewish faith and their background and the history of Christianity and on and on. And one of the students in the class asked the rabbi during Q&A what he believed about Jesus. And the rabbi replied saying, Jesus was a Jewish heretic of the first century. Now that pastor said, on the other hand, unexpected, unexpectedly one day I dropped into the home of another rabbi, a friend of mine, and I saw, as soon as I went in, a copy of the New Testament on a table just inside the door. We talked about that a little bit, but he said, I came to this conclusion that among many of the Jewish people, there is a fascination with the person of Jesus. Some of you know, and some of you know him, but we've had Dr. Ben Alpert here numbers of times at Faith Community and all the churches that I've ever pastored, and <clears throat> he and his wife, Bonnie, they are from the organization called Chosen People Ministries. And, these, and there are several Messianic Jewish missions like that. But these people see themselves as completed Jews, or they also call themselves Messianic Jews. In other words, they're Jewish in every tradition and every belief and every historical background, but they also have put their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation and found new life in him. These are the most complete Christians in the world, in my humble estimation, because they know the value of the coin from both sides. And boy, they can teach. They can teach. They can open things up that you never thought. And when they get into the, the Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, other known, and otherwise known to us as uh, Paul the Apostle, and into some of those great teachings in the New Testament, they can just open those pages and those truths just fly off. Well, we're getting closer. But still I want to ask, does it matter? Does it matter what I believe? Let me turn it over and ask, does it matter what you believe? Does it matter for today? Does it matter for tomorrow? And does it matter for your eternal future? What you believe. Which brings me to Christianity. How are the beliefs of Christians different from the ones I've already discussed with you? We believe in a God who is the author of life. He created a good world. He is apart from that creation. In other words, like Dr. Hobbins said, he's not inside that com computer running around changing numbers. But he's very much in control of what's happening. 
We believe there are not many gods. There is one who has revealed himself in love to his creation in the person of Jesus Christ. He gave us the law knowing that we could not keep his law. Even though it was the way to life in the fullest sense of the word, but because of our failure, he provided a way of forgiveness. Aren't you glad? We deserve to die. But Jesus Christ died in our place that we could be forgiven. He also overcame death through his resurrection, the cornerstone of our faith, so that we could know that we do not have to fear death. Death was arrested, and my life began. We remember that he said in John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. And he's still living, amen? Oh, it's interesting that in some of these other religions, I'll just take the Quran as, as one example, there are no miracles performed by Muhammad. There are no miracles in any of the other religions performed by anyone else. There isn't even a single mention of love of some other God for the world or for the people in it. There are many, many laws and there are a lot of strict warnings of penalties and, and what's going to happen if you don't keep these laws. But the concept of, of, of be having a relationship with a God, a God, any God, is not found anywhere in the teachings of these other, especially the first three religions that I covered. Just think about that. Here's what Christians understand. That Christianity is not about moral laws or religious practices. It is all about a relationship with a living Savior who is Jesus Christ. So over in Philippians chapter 3, the great rabbi, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, and starting at verse 8, wrote some interesting words. Just four verses I want to share you, with you. If we could. What is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What a testimony. There is nothing else in this world that matters, says Paul. For whose sake I've lost all things and later would lose his life also. I consider them what? Garbage that I may gain Christ. What does verse 9 say? And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Just underline that if you're a Bible underliner. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. By grace are you saved through faith. And then what does verse 10 say? I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings. Be careful. Becoming like Him in His death. And so somehow, 
attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12. Is there another verse there? No. So here's the point that Paul's making. I want to be owned by Christ. I want nothing else to even compare to my relationship with Christ. I want to live for Christ. I want to witness of Christ. I want to die in Christ. And I want to be raised to new life in Christ as well. I want to totally identify. You see, when we go to Genesis 1, we can identify with God and Christ in the creation. Because even before the day of creation, you and I were in the mind of God. Your life was all out on a screen before God. He knew everything that was going to happen, when it was going to happen, how it was going to happen, who else was going to be involved, etc., etc., etc. All comes as a surprise to us, but that's the truth. When you look at the cross of Calvary and you see the death that Jesus died for you and for me, you can identify with that death. Why? Because your sin, all of it, past, present, and future, and mine, were on that cross. They were on the body of Christ. He took them all. That's called identification. And when Jesus rose from the dead and walked out of that tomb, you can again for the third time identify with Christ. Because he rose to live forevermore. And he said, because I live and you believe, you also will live. It is this relationship with Christ that's the center of our faith. We're not trying to appease an angry God. We're learning how to fall in love with our Creator, our Redeemer, and our friend. I read the AP article some time ago, told the story of some people of the Muslim faith in Oslo, Norway, In the article read, and I quote, they applied for the right to call worshipers to prayer, uh, saying in their own uh, Arabic language, God is great, and that called people to prayer. And they would do it over loudspeakers, still do. And the neighborhood council in Oslo granted them the request to the delight of the world Islamic uh, mission, and a spokesman said, this is a victory of great symbolic importance. It means our religion is respected on the same lines as other religions, and that was wonderful to them. But to keep things completely equal, the council also approved a request by the Norwegian Heathen Society to summon members to their meetings by calling out, There is no God! And they did that over the loudspeakers, and that was accepted by the council as well. And I read that with some, just, just some feeling of disbelief that this really would have happened. And then I thought, wait, there's a message there. There's something there that illustrates a point. And it's this. Friend, listen if you would. There are many voices shouting at us from many different directions today. And it's important to know something about them in order to be able to discern one shout from another so that we will be so discerning in our search for truth that we won't mistake it when we see it. Bill Hybels 
after interviewing people from the different religions that we've talked about, said this, and I quote, You need to know that the law of non-contradiction says that positions that are different from one another cannot be equally true. You've got to figure out what you believe and where you're going to drive that stake in the ground and say, on the evidence, on the search that I've done, this is what I believe. This is what I will stake my life and my eternity on. And that, my friend, is exactly the point. This is not just a preference of philosophies, which one do you like the best and which one sounds better in your ear. This is not an intellectual quest. Your life, hear me, and your eternity are at stake. And my friend, you need to make a careful, careful decision. Yeah, where will I drive my stake in the ground and say, this is it. This is what I believe. And this is why. Does it matter what I believe? Let's all ask that question. Would you say it with me one time? Does it matter what I believe? All religions are not the same. Let me suggest, for me, Jesus Christ is my Savior, my Lord, and my King. And if you'll allow me, with credits to the late Pastor S.M. Lockridge, I'll ask one more question. That's my King. Do you know him? My king was born king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's an ethnic king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. That's my king. Well, I wonder if you know him. Do you really know him? Don't mislead me. Do you know my king? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. My king is the only one of whom there are no means of measure that could ever define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of the shore of his supply. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely secure and sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's honest. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the grandest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of historic theology. He's the carnal necessity of spiritual religion. That's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. 
He's the only one able to supply all your needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He's the almighty God who guides and keeps all his people. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the ages. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. That's my king. Do you know him? My king is a king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He is the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislatures. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of the governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. That's my king. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. I wish I could. He's indescribable. He is my king. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. And he's irresistible. I came here to tell you that the heavens of heavens cannot contain him, let alone some man standing on a little platform trying to explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree about him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. People, are you serious? That's my king. First time I ever heard any of this, I was standing up, and I started jumping and clapping and praising and amening. I, they thought they were going to have to carry me out. And I said, if I don't have a, one or two people in my amen corner, and I don't give them the heads up before this sermon today, this is what could happen. This thing could fall flat. He's always been. He will always be. I'm talking about the fact that he had no predecessor, and he's not going to have any successor. There's nobody before him. There'll be nobody after him. You cannot impeach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. That's my king. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. All the power belongs to my king. Oh, we go around talking about black power, and we talk about white power, and we talk about green power. In the end, all that matters is God's power. Thine is the power, yeah, and the glory. We try to get prestige. You and I try to get glory and honor for ourselves, but all the glory is His. Yes, thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever, and ever, and ever, and ever. How long is that anyway, Pastor? Well, forever, and ever, and ever, and ever. And when you get through with all your evers, then it's forever, and 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 forever. Amen, and amen, and amen. There is one name, one 
One. Jesus. 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 No other name. All who can, please let's stand and honor him. Please no one leave this room unless it's an emergency. Thank you and listen to this. This is part of the message. i
mighty warrior, King of fire. No matter what I face, you're by my side. When you don't Suffering I do dream of its work I do sing on in my Savior, both bruised and crushed, showed that God. Gently to my knees and 
Lost for words, so lost in love. I sweetly broken, holy Unreckoned. 